Today's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know how many of you know Jacinta Elliott. She does the graphic design for our bulletins now, and I love the cover that she did for this week. How many of y'all have met Jacinta? You need to come up during the week and just meet her. She's fun and sassy and gives me grief, and uh, you would love her for that alone. But uh, she's just wonderful and does such a great job, and I really appreciate her using uh, the image of the finish line in that cover, because really this is Paul sharing his final word, really, for Timothy and for us. It's really the view from the finish line. It's really like his valedictory address. It's his final words that we know of prior to his being executed, prior to his being martyred. And it, and it jarred my memory back uh, remembering uh, the wonderful preacher George Whitfield of the 18th century who was deathly ill but was scheduled to preach in Exeter, uh, Massachusetts one Sunday. And so he got up uh, that morning in Portsmouth and rode his horse the 15 miles and was going to preach in a church, but he was known as an open field preacher. And apparently a number of people prior to where you would reach the church were in an open field and, and beckoned him over and begged that he would preach to them. Again, he'd been very, very ill. In fact, he later died that evening. But as he got off of his horse, uh, the first person who was there, apparently a gentleman named Richard Smith. I don't know if Richard's here this morning, but a guy named Richard Smith said, Sir, uh, you look more fit for bed than you are to preach. I mean, he looked, looked ill. And George Whitfield said, True, sir. And Smith recounted that at that moment he turned away from everyone and looked heavenward and quietly prayed these words that I think you'll see up here. Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If you have not yet finished my course, or if I have not finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields, seal thy truth, and come home and die. I just think that's a beautiful valedictory statement there. George Whitfield finished strong, and no doubt Paul did. And this is his final address. And it reminds us that you and I need to finish strong. Now, we're going to go back to the verses that, that T read just a moment ago, but we're actually going to skip ahead to the verses that follow. Because the more I studied those verses, it reminded me that in order for all of us to finish strong, we need each other. And Paul refers in those verses following both to people who are helping him finish and those who actually did not help him so much. But I hope that this morning you and I will be reminded that we need to finish strong. And I want you to be considering as a framework as we talk through this that there's got to be something in your life right now. Personal, emotional, spiritual, I don't know what it is. Some kind of sin, whatever it might be. Something that you need to give back over to God so you can start anew before you leave this place. So that you can all the more finish strong. That's what we're talking about this morning. Now some of us start out strong but finish weak. I want to look at one of the verses that follows what T read. Let's look at verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life. It can also mean the things of this world and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, what do we know about Demas? He's mentioned in the New Testament only three times. 
The first time chronologically is in Philemon, where Paul writes to Philemon uh, that Demas sends his greetings. That's what it says. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, in Philemon he says, Demas is my fellow worker. Apologies. There you go. Demas is my fellow worker. Then you go to Colossians, and that's where he says at the close of his letter, Demas sends his greetings. And this is the third time Demas has deserted me. It's really interesting if you look at Demas. He starts out as a fellow laborer, a co-worker of Paul. Next time Paul talks about him and he appears to be more of a bystander, Demas sends his greetings. Now Demas has left me high and dry. He has deserted me. Some people start out strong but finish weak. And we know people like that who start strong and then fade out. It's a familiar story. Everybody in here is probably familiar with the name Billy Graham. How many of you know the name Bron Clifford? Has anybody heard of the name Bron Clifford? Anybody in here? If you go back to 1945, Billy Graham was a big preacher and he was packing auditoriums. Bron Clifford was packing even more auditoriums. Bron Clifford was known as the best young preacher in America, and he knew how to pack an auditorium even better than Billy Graham. They were both in their early 20s, but at that year, 1945, Bron Clifford had touched more lives, gained more people under under his influence, and had really set attendance records higher than any person around his age in American history. Again, how many of you have heard of Bron Clifford? I don't see anybody. Sadly, it was soon after 1945 that he let a few things get the best of him, his ego, his greed, then what became an addiction to alcohol. And by 1953, you know what he was doing? He was a used car salesman in a small town in Texas, living in a sleazy motel across the street, where eventually he died of cirrhosis of the liver. Started out strong, no doubt finished weak. Well, you know people like this. I do as well. They start out with this thriving, vibrant faith, but something comes along the way, whether it's a relationship or some sin, uh, some addiction, some irresponsibility, uh, just laziness, whatever it might be, and they wind up fading out. I do hope that's not you, but I wonder if in some place in your heart, in your walk with Jesus, you need to shore up a certain area so that you can start anew again before you leave this place, and as you leave this place, strive to finish strong. Well, sometimes we start out weak and then finish strong. Isn't it interesting? Go on to verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Yes, that's the Luke who accompanied Paul on some of his journeys and eventually authored one of the Gospels. But then you have the guy who authored the very first Gospel chronologically. Bring Mark with you when you come. For he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Now, what do we know about John Mark? And you probably know the story. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. At some point, though, he left very suddenly, left them high and dry, left them one man down. We don't know if he got homesick, if it was somebody back home. Uh, It was probably that, that the terrain was treacherous and it was a dangerous area, and he just decided, I've had enough of this, and he leaves. It causes a split later on, as you know, between uh, Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas winds up taking John Mark and giving him a second chance. Paul goes with Silas for the second missionary journey. But what's really cool is you realize at some point years later, Paul has reconciled with John Mark and sees him as a wonderful person to stand by him, a wonderful advocate, a wonderful co-worker. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. At some point, Paul let go of the anger and regret and disappointment and bitterness and reconciled with John Mark. And look at what John Mark eventually did. 
authored the earliest gospel that we know of. And, and the symbol of John Mark in the gospels is of a lion that's a winged creature, a winged lion because of his courage. So Mark made a comeback, started out weak, finished strong. Well, again, let me ask you where you are in your race. You might be well into the race, but really you're, you're, you're lagging behind. You've fallen behind. Maybe you've just fallen off the track completely. But it doesn't matter. The good thing is you can begin again, start anew, shore up that area you need to shore up that you might be a better disciple, and you can still finish strong. And if you're doing okay, that's great. But your calling as a member of the church is to do what? Lift up other people and build them up and encourage them if they have fallen off the track, just like Paul did with John Mark. Be an encourager, be a friend, be loyal to them, and help them get back on their way. When it gets down to it, though, come on. We're all broken sinners in need of Jesus. It's a pretty level playing field. You've heard it said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You bet it is. We are all equally wounded, broken, depraved sinners in need of God's grace. So let's say that every one of us in here could use doing something inside of ourselves that we need to have transformed and improved. So we need to think in those terms. Leave here with a new and stronger commitment. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we take that area in our life that we need to really improve that we might be better disciples? You really look to Paul and the words now that he read a moment ago because really it it really talks about pouring himself out. And first of all, being a sacrifice and living in sacrifice. Let's go back to uh, verse 6. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. Back in ancient Old Testament times, you had two types of offerings that you would have. One of them was a meat offering. The other was a liquid offering. People don't know as much about the liquid offering. It goes back to Exodus uh, chapter 29. And and it really talks about two different types of sacrifice. There is a meat sacrifice, but then it also talks about a liquid one. And the liquid one you would pour, and it would create an aroma that was pleasing to God, as it says here in these verses. Now, there was a distinct difference between a meat offering and a liquid offering, and they were keenly aware of this. A meat offering still had some benefit to the one who was releasing that offering to God. What was it? Well, they would cook the meat, burn the meat, but then they would get to eat it, partake of it. But with a liquid offering, they would offer that, and the liquid would simply do what? Evaporate and, and, and uh, become a steam, and then eventually it would just go and dissipate. And it was an aroma pleasing to God, but the person who offered it, does not get anything in return. It is something irretrievable, something they offer to God alone, and they realize there's no way to recover it. You're giving something of value to God, knowing you're not going to get it back. There is more sacrifice with that liquid offering. And that's what Paul is saying. We've got to live it out that way and not expect anything back from God, though eventually you definitely do. But we've got to pour ourselves out as a liquid offering, as Paul says. I like the way James Moffat in his old paraphrase puts it. He says, the last drops of my sacrifice are falling. I like that. The last drops of my sacrifice are falling. You know, a lot of us want to let our lives drip out little by little, (laughs) retaining a safe amount for ourselves. And yet, what is Paul telling us to do? He's telling us to be like Mary. Do you remember when she broke that alabaster jar? And, and poured that aromatic perfume all over Jesus in a reckless way. We're called to do the same thing as we pour ourselves out with reckless abandon for God because of his reckless grace that he offered to you and to me. So we've got to sacrifice. 
But secondly, we need to anticipate our departure and just cut through it and say, yeah, I know that one day I will need to depart this place. Let's go to the next verse there, verse 6, the latter part. The time of my death is near. The time of my death is near. It's, it's time for me to go. This phrase was used back then in Greco-Roman culture depicting someone who was striking a tent. They, these are people who had just been in battle and now they're taking a rest, but they're striking the tent to gear up toward another battle, realizing I could die there. It could be my time for departure, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to leave it all on the battlefield. That's really what it's talking about. Now, I, I know I talked about this person just last week, but a lot of people have been talking about him. Yosef Son. I think we've got a picture of him this time. This is a more recent picture of him. But back in the 1970s, he was a pastor in Romania during the Ceausescu regime, which, which was this horribly oppressive, oppressive, evil, tyrannical regime. And he was arrested numerous times, and he was charged with being a Christian pastor. Think of that. And he was imprisoned numerous times, interrogated numerous times, tortured numerous times. But one sentence I shared that he said to one of his interrogators last week has just stuck with me all week, and I'll just share it again. You know, uh, he was being beaten by this guy. This guy threatened him with death, and he said this, Sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. I just love that. You cannot threaten me with glory. By the way, uh, he left there. They exiled him in 1981 because they couldn't break him. They tried for 11 years. Another time, and I love this, and I mentioned this last week, he was being uh, beaten and interrogated, and the man said, you know, I could just kill you if I want. And he said, sir, you should know that your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. I just love that. So we need to be ready for our departure, knowing that one day uh, we will depart, and one day we will have a wonderful goal that we receive, but for now we fight toward that goal, and that's what we do also. We fight for it. Look at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Some would say that good fight is an oxymoron, like uh, jumbo shrimp, you know? Is, is it a big shrimp or a little jumbo? Uh, somebody, what's another oxymoron? Uh, sane Tennessee fan. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. Okay. No, hey, well, hey, is Don Sullivan in here? Okay, anyway, just did that for him. Um, but some would say a good fight is an oxymoron. I have wonderful students at Sanford who go through a pacifist stage, and I'm like, hey, tell me where the Bible condemns self-defense. Where does it condemn, you know, defending innocent people? Uh, hey, last week, you know, on a train in France, there were three guys that got involved in an altercation with this guy who might have done worse stuff. Anybody read about that? I'm sorry. I call that a good fight. Good fight. Can I get it? No, don't worry. That's just my opinion. But I could get a witness on it. But that's a good fight. And, and what Paul is saying, you've got to fight the good fight. But the word there for I have fought, fought is the word from the Greek agonizo. It means I have agonized the good fight. Uh, it's, it's actually more of, of an athletic term, actually. He moves from a military terminology with striking the tent to an athletic one. And he's saying, I have agonized this good fight. In other words, I have kept agonizing through my exercise, through straining myself, through pouring myself into this, leaving it on the field, leaving it on the court. I have agonized over it, and I have fought that good fight. It's the agony that athletes go through. It's an Olympic term. And it applies to the next phrase, I have finished the race. I have left it all out there. Even when I have become bruised and broken, even when I have gone through times of despair and loss and frustration and confusion, I decided I'm going to keep going and leave it all out there. 
And I can't help but think of, some of you older folks might remember, PBS had the coolest uh, pre-Olympics uh, documentaries that went on a number of years ago that were produced by a guy named Bud Greenspan, and I watched every one of them. I was just riveted to him because I love the Olympic stuff. And I'll never forget when they covered the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Uh, there was a guy named John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania, and he had just started the marathon race, and it was all bright and sunshiny, and uh, he took a terrible fall early in the race and, and s- severely hurt his leg, his knee, and you see these, these makeshift bandages that he tied around himself real quickly, but then kept going. He really shouldn't have been running, or a lot of people said that, but he could not stop. Could not stop. He arrived at the stadium a long time after everybody else. Uh, most of the crowd is gone by this time, but I love his spirit, and in fact, we've got it, I think, on video, just a brief clip of it, so I thought we'd show that. A little over an hour after Mama Walde crosses the finish line, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania approaches the stadium, the last man to complete the journey. A voice calls from within to go on, and so he goes on. Afterwards, it was written, Today we have seen a young African runner who symbolizes the finest in the human spirit. A performance that gives true dignity to sport. A performance that lifts sport out of the category of grown men playing at games. A performance that gives meaning to the word courage. All honor to John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. Perhaps the words of John Stephen Aquari epitomize all that is right in the human spirit. When asked why he did not quit, he said simply, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. I still love seeing that. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me here to finish it. God did not send you here. God does not send you out just to start a race, but to finish it. Can't help but think of Jesus hanging on the cross after so much agonizo he went through, so much agony for three straight years, not just the physical pain of the cross, but all of the rejection, all the injustice, all the misunderstanding, all the frustrations. And yet at the end, as he hangs on the cross, he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. A word of triumph, a word of victory, saying all of my agony is finished and it is worth it. I fought for the goal. And you've got to fight for it. And you've also got to stay faithful. That's the next verse, 
verse 7, and I have remained faithful. The the language there is really talking about, you know, giving yourself over to some sacred calling and sticking with it and leaving it all out there. Not giving up until, well, it reminds me of the African-American pastor who spoke at my father's uh, retirement, J.B. Bottoms. I think I've mentioned this before, but he he ends most every talk he gives with, uh, well, he said, Brother Barnett, don't give up until you go up. And I've always loved that. Don't give up until you go up. And I like how Paul is not ready to give up even though he tells Timothy, hey, I'm going to die soon. He doesn't say I'm going to die soon, so I'm going to lie down. Look at verse 6 and then verse 13. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. Sounds like he's saying, okay, time to wrap it up. But look just a few verses later, verse 13. Hey, when you come, be sure to bring the coat that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books and especially my papers. He's not ready to quit. That's his ammunition right there for sharing the gospel, right there. So, hey, we're not done. My time is near, but for now, bring all that stuff to me. I'm not finished yet. Because he remains faithful, he knows that a prize awaits. And that's really verse 8, where we savor that prize. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all, including ourselves, who eagerly look forward to his appearing. I love the word prize there. It's the word Stephanus. It's where we get the name Stephen. And it's an athletic image, again, of finishing a race. And Paul does it with the right mindset, with the right drive, with the right attitude. Uh, In Acts chapter 20, when he's saying farewell, really a tearful farewell to the elders at Miletus, he says this, My life is worth nothing unless I run the race serving Christ and if I finish the course with joy. Uh, just last week, it was in this service, it was kind of cool. You remember I talked about Jason Lyon last week? Uh, This is Ashley, uh, his sister, and Margie Turp, who are students at Sanford, and they shared uh, last week in the opening convocation about Ashley's brother, Jason, who is a senior in high school as we speak and was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. We showed a video last week of him being interviewed on a radio station, and it's just incredible uh, the impact he has made and and the lion-hearted movement uh, that we've done, and I forgot my bracelet. Ashley's not here, is she? Is Ashley here? Good. Tell her, don't tell her I didn't have the wristband. I'll I'll get it for school tomorrow. Okay, but uh, Jason is such a cool guy. I think we got a picture of Jason up here. Uh, That's Jason and Ashley. Jason uh, had been a baseball player, varsity, varsity football player at Christian High School in Alpine, California, and now he's battling this inoperable uh, tumor, but I mean, it's just amazing his spirit and his mindset to all this, and his drive, and yes, his attitude, saying, man, this is cool. Every day, people are being impacted by this, and I hear from all these people. And, and, and I remember, as he said last week, what better thing to have happen to you than this witness that I've been able to be? And I just thought that was so cool. Well, just to update you, apparently Ashley told him, you know, that, that I talked about him last week. And so I got friended by him on Facebook uh, last week, so I felt really hip and down with it, with the kids. But it was just so cool what he wrote, and I thought, you know, he, he messaged me on Facebook, and I thought it was great, and I thought, God, this kid is amazing. This is what he said, Mr. Barnett, thank you so much for, following Mar- for allowing Margs and Ash to speak. That's Margie and Ashley. It fills me with great joy to know that the Lord is being proclaimed to the maximum opportunity through my situation. It sounds like Paul in Philippians, hey, I'm in prison. It's great, because look at all the good stuff. Appreciate your prayers and thoughts, and I especially love this. I pray I have the strength to share the love of God the rest of my life. This is a kid that doesn't know if it's going to take him tomorrow. 
or next week or in a few weeks, or it might be months, maybe years, we don't know. But he just wants to continue to have the strength to share the love of God as long as he can. <laughs> and he's really bold, and, and he says, see, it's Sanford. I can't wait to see. If he comes here, we've got to bring him over here. But uh, just an amazing kid. Now, I want to say this, though. You might think to yourself, gosh, I don't have a witness like Jason's, you know. Do I make an impact? Absolutely you do as you run the race. Absolutely you do. Uh, you never know really how you're impacting people and how you're going to be recognized for it. I've always wanted to preach a sermon on Carpus. Let's go back to verse 13. <laughs> he says to Timothy, when you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. <laughs> he kind of, oh, doggone it, I left that coat, but Carpus has it. Now, what do we know about Carpus? Does he appear three times in the Bible? No. This is the only time we hear about him. All we know about Carpus is that he was the custodian of Paul's coat. That's all we know. He was the caretaker of Paul's cloak, and that's it. He was to be sure that it was okay until Timothy would go get it and bring it to Paul. That's all we know about him. But what's cool to me is just by guarding this coat, taking care of it, uh, he shows up in Holy Scripture. That's kind of cool. He's immortalized in Holy Scripture. And I hope that's a good reminder to you and me that we don't know what small things we do that make an incredible impact on the kingdom. There's a secretary over at uh, Sanford who has this sign on her desk. Great occasions to serve God come seldom. Little ones surround us daily. I like that. Great occasions to serve God come seldom. Little ones surround us daily. And we can encourage one another and celebrate with one another because even now you and I are anticipating that victory in the long run because we have fought the good fight, we have run the race, and when we finish it, we do have a prize that awaits us. That's what God's Word promises to us. I like the way Philip Yancey puts it about how we gather together each week to glorify God because of this victory. He says, like a victorious locker room, church is a great place to exult, to give thanks, to celebrate the good news that all are forgiven, that God is love and victory is certain. Victory is certain. Paul knew that victory. And I like how he left, you know, he went out singing. He went out singing. Look at the final verse here, verse 18. <laughs> he says, yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And then he breaks into a doxology. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Paul goes out singing. And I love that. There's a guy named Frank who went out smiling. Wonderful preacher in Kentucky named Kyle Eidelman. And Kyle got a call one Sunday night about his friend Frank who had been ill for about a year in and out of the hospital. He was now back in the hospital and was going to pass at any time. They called Kyle. Kyle got dressed, drove to the hospital. And when he walked in, he said all of the family, all the extended family was all in there and they were all crying. And he kind of wove his way through them to the hospital bed, and there was Frank, and he was just grinning with this childlike grin. And, and Kyle said, look at you smiling. And, and, and one of the adult sons said, well, he's probably not you know, cognitive because he's had all this medication and everything. He's just been smiling a lot today. Oh, really? Okay, well, do you mind if I pray with him? Sure. So he takes, he takes Frank's hand, and they say a prayer together. And every time that, that uh, it was appropriate to squeeze Kyle's hand because of something Kyle said, Frank was doing that. And Kyle has prayed with enough people, you know, with hands held. He was like, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what I'm saying. So they finished the prayer. Kyle looked up, and as Kyle said, he's, you know, Frank still had this goofy grin on his face. And he finally said, Frank, why are you smiling? 
And at that moment, it was great. Frank looked over to the bedside table over here and pointed to it. And it was a bedside table. What was over there? All that was over there were some books and magazines that family members that had been there through the hours would pick up and leaf through while, while he was there, really kind of with his life uh, ebbing away. But Kyle walked over there, and on the very top was a book by Jody Erickson Tata entitled, uh, it's just Heaven. That's the name of it, Heaven. And he thought, okay. He brings it back over to Frank and points at the title and says, hey, Frank, is this why you're smiling? And they said he hadn't nodded his head in days, and he suddenly went, (laughs) closed his eyes and grinned even bigger and just nodded his head, just nodded his head. And so Kyle took the book and tucked it between Frank's arm and his side, and they watched his life ebb away toward great victory. Frank went out smiling. Paul went out singing, how will you go out? I hope that you will go out in a way that will show that you have run the race, fought the good fight, have savored that prize at the end. And whatever it is right now that you need to shore up in your own life that you might do it, I hope that you will take a moment of prayer and commit to doing just that. Let's pray together. And I want you to think about that area of your life. It might be some habitual sin. It might be some struggle. It might be a struggle to forgive someone. It might be some bitterness or some uncertainty. It might be some fear about something that's kind of paralyzing you, keeping you from from doing something you know you're called to do. It could be any number of things. It could be a relational issue. Whatever it might be, will you take just a moment in the silence and, and just lift that up to God and commit yourself anew to leaving here so that you can run the race even more fervently, more strongly, more intensely, more passionately for him? Will you do that? Lord, hear our prayers as we make ourselves transparent to you. Give us the courage to do just that. Remind us that, again, at the cross, it's, a, it's, it's very level. We are all such broken, depraved people, desperately in need of your love and your grace and your mercy. So be with us as we commit ourselves anew to you. Lord, if there be ways that we can help others who have just fallen out of the race, fallen off the track, may we be there for them as well, because that is what church is about. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who cried out, it is finished on the cross after he ran the greatest of races and brings to us the greatest of victories. We pray these things in your name. Amen.